I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Murder in Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Previously on Murder in Miami. Well, the world knows me as Happy Miles. If you'd wager, a former cocaine smuggler with 83 years under their belt would have some pretty interesting stories to share. With Happy, you'd hit the jackpot. Lamar Chester had a bunch of airplanes he couldn't pay for, so I bought them. And that's how I met Lamar. Yeah, Lamar wasn't afraid of anything. One time I went up to his apartment and he opened a footlocker and got a couple machine guns out of it. He was flying guns then to Nicaragua. And did he tell you who he was running the guns for? The CIA, I I would imagine the CIA was running that show. Hey, I forgot to tell you something, but I'll tell you tomorrow, remind me. Hey, gorgeous. Hey, you wanted me to remind you to tell me a story about landing on Lamar's Island. Lamar Chester, he never ran anything but grass until I turned over that load of coke to him on the island. So this would have been one of his firsts? Right. Do you think that's the first time that he ever ran coke? Yes. I know it because he told me that he had made more money off of that run than he had made his entire life running grass out of Colombia and Jamaica. Wow. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Miami. The story Happy's about to share about setting Lamar up with his first load of cocaine is set in 1980. Now, just explain to me, you were running coke from where? South America from Colombia. The trip had gone kind of ragged. 
the trip before, I barely got off this muddy levee bank. And I knew I couldn't come out with full fuel because it had been raining ever since the last trip, and it would even be muddier. And so I decided I would only come out with a partial load of fuel. Weather had already complicated Happy's departure from Columbia in terms of flying out with a full tank of fuel, which would have made the plane too heavy to take off. But after he fueled up in South Caicos, weather would also complicate handing off the load in Florida to his associate Don, too. Well, the weather was so bad in Florida that Don didn't think I was going to come. Well, where the hell could I have gone? I mean, the trip was on. I was leaving Columbia, and I needed to get there. And my plan was to land, give the load to Don, and him get out of there right away. Well, they went to lunch. While his cocaine-unloading crew was lunching, Happy says he encountered a different sort of welcoming committee, and not the sort he welcomed. As I crossed the channel from Bimini to Opalaka, I realized they were on me. And I finally found out what frequency they were working on, and I was listening to them, and hell, there was a dozen of them on me, and they were coordinating. A dozen planes were following you. Yeah. Everything DEA and... Customs had was on me, and and some state birds, too. So you had gotten all the way back to Florida and realized that you have everybody on your tail. Exactly. So a rather unhappy happy was left to formulate an escape on the fly, literally. I turned around and headed east, not knowing what I was going to do. And as I came out of a cloud, I was nose-to-nose with their Loach helicopter. And the helicopter, I mean, we weren't 300, 500 feet away from each other with a closure rate of over 300 miles an hour. Oh, my gosh. So you come out of a cloud and you are facing a DEA helicopter. Yes. So he dropped the collective and went right under me, and I went right over the top. And he landed in a field. And I circled him, and he was throwing up in the middle of the field. Because he thought he was going to die. Yeah. And so then I decided, well, I'll go out to the Bahamas and probably end up ditching the airplane in deep water somewhere, but close enough that I can swim to the shore. And the airplane will be so deep that they'll never be able to get it or they won't go get it. And I'll be home free. Well, I realized I had two airplanes still following me. The Jetstar was on me and the Aero Commander was on me. Well, the aero commander I knew didn't have radar and had to stay on me visually. And then I heard the jet star landing in Nassau, and he told the tower, it's an emergency, can you get us a fuel truck out? And the guy in the tower said, man, who do you think I is, you fuel lackey? 
Get your own fuel truck. That is Mr. Miles's impersonation of a Bahamian accent. So I knew he'd be on the ground for a while trying to get fuel. So the whole time they're following you, you're going through the different frequencies and picking up their transmissions. You're eavesdropping on them. Yeah, I'm eavesdropping on them. So there's a great big thundercloud between me and Nassau, and I'm headed like I'm going to Hawksville, Ron Elliott's island property, his hotel. So I flew right into the thunderstorm, which they will never do, because if you're not lucky, you'll get sucked up in the vortex and spit out at 40,000 feet in pieces. So the minute I went in, they went around to the north. It was the shortest distance around this thunderstorm. And the minute I was in and they couldn't see me, I made a 90 degree turn to the right and came out the bottom of this thunderstorm headed south. So I'd been in the air for over 10 and a half hours at that time. Wow. And I I only had 11 hours of fuel. And that is the point that Happy says he happened upon. International drug smuggler Lamar Chester. Who happened to own two nearby islands. I come up on Captain America, Lamar's red, white, and blue 207. Just happened to pass him in the air. Just happened to be overtaking him, yeah. He was headed from Nassau to his island. And when you're coming on an airplane from the back, you don't have anything to see. It's very hard to see an airplane from the back. You got a rudder and a horizontal and a wing, but nothing of mass. And I almost ran him over. I came within a quarter of a mile before I would have run him over. And I saw him, so I pulled up alongside of him and We finally found each other on an obscure frequency, and I said, hey, I want to rent a boat. He said, I don't know if you can afford it. And I said, well, put an M on the end, and that should make you happy. What runway do you want me to use? And by putting an M on the number, Mr. Miles means $1 million. Well, he couldn't make up his mind, the big island, the little island. And finally, at the last minute, he said, land on the on the short strip. Well, he only has about 900 feet up there by the house on the hill. And you can land the Comanche in six or 700 feet, eight out of 10 times. But the other two times are going to get you. The airplane's going to float and you're not going to make it. And it ended into a blunt cliff. So, you know, you're gonna die. So I went in and I was only a few hundred feet from landing and the left engine quit, ran out of fuel. Well, when that happens, the airplane veers right away. So I had a hell of a time getting it back on track in a couple hundred feet and still landing. Holy moly. And luckily, I touched down right at the start of the runway where it went straight after it came out of his under 
background hangar and got the airplane stopped in 600 feet. So he said, what do you got? And I said, well, I've got 440 pounds of stuff. I need you to fly it in for me. He said, well, I'll fly it to Georgia. I said, I don't give a shit where you fly it. Just take it in for me and I'll give you a million bucks. That's what happened. So you offered Lamar a million dollars to land at his island and to bring the coke back to the United States. Right. And that million? It came out of the shipment Happy was flying for Pablo Escobar. Yes, that Pablo Escobar, the Colombian drug lord and narco-terrorist who founded the Medellin cartel. Even when I took a million dollars of coke out of the load, I wasn't worried about getting rubbed out or anything because it was a legitimate expense. I mean, I was resourceful enough to still get the majority of the load through. I had 220 keys, and I lost 35 of them to pay Lamar. Big deal. Uh, It is a big deal that Happy lived to tell about it. But that's another story. I mean, I did what I had to do, and it worked out. You've got to have, like, a cat. But instead of nine lives, you must have, like, 900. By the way... Happy says he shared the same story about losing a dozen government agency planes trailing him with the federal agent who helped broker his equally incredible immunity deal, which we'll cover later. While the agent prefers not to be named, he was able to verify it. When uh, started to tell the story, I had told him to his cohorts. They said it never happened. He's full of shit. So went down and traced my steps and finally found my motel receipt for that night when I was going back to Miami. And then he found the guys that were flying that day and they said, oh, yeah, but Billy wrote the report. Go to Billy. Billy, did you write? No, uh, Harry was going to write the report. Go to Harry. No, Charlie was going to write the report. They never wrote a report on it. I was worried they had my end number, but they never wrote a report on it. Why do you think? Oh, they had so much egg on their face that I could screw them all over. By flying into that storm cloud. I mentioned earlier that Happy's dabbled in the film business before. Well, he sent me a DVD that contained a movie he made about the Bahamas Family Island Regatta, a celebrated sailing event and crowd pleaser since 1954. Happy footed the bill for the extravagant production, which he places at a quarter of a million dollars, and opens with a very formal Mr. Miles promoting his signature plane in conjunction with the film. This is the PBY, and I'm Happy Miles. Together we fly around the world to experience the joy of fulfillment in communities both large and small. Happy walks as he reads his lines, frequently stopping and changing directions, along with the camera, making for some amusing edits. Come with me to see what it is that rewards men and women with the sense of knowing they are the best that they can be. 
when you're doing your stand-up and they have you walk three feet this way and then stop and then walk three feet that way to camera? Oh, because you should see the outtakes. (laughs) I'm fucking dyslexic and I can't read cue cards. (laughs) We had just come from lunch and I had had about four rum and cokes. (laughs) So... I had a hell of a time getting my lines done. What follows is a lush and slick overview of the regatta. But what makes the footage exceptionally interesting is the access it highlights between Happy and the Bahamian government. The stage is set as Prime Minister Lyndon Findling, along with the visiting dignitaries and island officials, gather for speeches and congratulations to all regatta participants. Do you know that uh, I'm the only American allowed to race with the Bahamians? Is that still true? Yeah. I'm a citizen one week out of the year, and that week to be designated by Out Island Regatta. How did you pull that off? Oh, Penling, the prime minister. (laughs) Yeah, we just made a declaration. Prime Minister Pindling acknowledges the people of Exuma and all of those who have maintained the high standards over the years for the family island regatta. Lyndon Pindling is perhaps the most famous and controversial Bahamian politician. He served as the first black premier of the colony of the Bahama Islands from 1967 to 1969 and as prime minister of the Bahamas from 1969 to 1992. Known as the father of the nation, he's also known for helming the darkest period in modern Bahamian history, 1977 to 1992, a time when the Bahamas served as a convenient and corruptible stopover for contraband bound for the U.S. Something exposed in a 1983 NBC investigative piece titled The Bahamas, A Nation for Sale. The report alleged, among other things, that Carlos Slater, the German Colombian drug lord and members of his infamous Medellin cartel used Norman's Key in Exuma as a layover point to traffic cocaine into the United States. It also implied the Bahamas government and Pendling profited by turning a blind eye to drug smuggling, assisted by a prominent Bahamian attorney named Nigel Bow. Well, Nigel was an attorney who was Pendling's bag man mainly. For somebody who doesn't understand that expression, what does bagman mean? Well, it means that when later moved into the Bahamas, he paid a lot of money to be able to operate out of Norman's Key like he did. And Nigel would go over and pick up the money and deliver it to Pinling. So bagman is the guy who's transporting the money from one party to the other. Yeah, so whatever Nigel said with the police or customs or anything was the same as probably Pinling saying it. He had a lot of clout. So if somebody wanted to get away with something illicit in the Bahamas, Nigel was the person you had to go through? He was the man. He was the man. Yeah, without a doubt. 
Though Pentling and Bo denied the accusations, the public outcry led to the creation in 1984 of the Royal Commission of Inquiry into Drug Trafficking and Government Corruption in the Bahamas. A review of Pentling's personal finances by the commission found that he had spent eight times his reported total earnings from 1977 to 1984, finding... The Prime Minister and Lady Pentling have received at least $57.3 million in cash. Explanations for some of these deposits were given, but could not be verified. And also pulled into that inquiry, a former Eastern Airlines pilot, Lamar Chester. So how did Chester end up getting pulled into the Bahamas inquiry anyway? I'm really not sure just how he got pulled into it, but he certainly wanted to go. He had to get permission from the judge in his trial. He'd already been indicted to leave the country. And after going through the the ropes on that, he did, uh, flew down there. Remember, having been indicted in the U.S., Chester would have needed court permission to leave the country. As he knew at the time, it was his chance to make a public statement of his gray male defense, that he did it for the CIA. He also knew that there weren't going to be any legal consequences for him, certainly in the Bahamas, because the inquiry didn't have the authority to indict anyone anyway. That's really interesting. So it's possible that Chester was just incentivized to go there because it provided him with a platform and a megaphone to state the gray male defense. Yeah, I'm sure he has assumed that he would get national publicity. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. 
We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the most significant things in this whole case was Lamar Chester's appearance before a royal commission of inquiry in the Bahamas. And that was, at the time, a really upsetting thing for the Bahamas because it was their version of Watergate. That's Atlanta-based journalist, producer, and documentarian C.B. Hackworth. Sir Lyndon Pendling was the hero of Bahamian independence. And there were swirling allegations that he was corrupt of receiving payoffs through an attorney named Nigel Bowe, who also represented Lamar Chester, that those payments were to permit drug smuggling in the Bahamas. Today, CB presents as a seasoned Southern journalist with, at certain angles, a passing resemblance to Robin Williams, which is reinforced by his fondness for suspenders, even when wearing jeans and a T-shirt. But when Hackworth's path first crossed with Lamar Chester and subsequently the Coconut Grove guys in 1983, he was a 25-year-old reporter working at the Gainesville Times, a local paper in Georgia. I became aware of Lamar Chester both through some earlier reporting in the newspaper where I was working and because I was covering a cocaine smuggling trial in federal court in which one of the defendants ended up being an unindicted co-conspirator in the Lamar Chester case. So that was a tie between those two cases. And who was the the tie-in? That was Grover Alexander, who was a local individual Grover Alexander had been convicted of murder at some point, but was a car dealer in White County. And he had repeatedly been arrested and was indicted with Lamar Chester. He was not convicted in the case that I was covering. But while covering the biggest drug smuggling case in Georgia history, I overheard some conversations in which Lamar Chester's name came up, and some federal officials were speculating that Lamar Chester was going to be indicted soon. So with those nudges, I took another look at what had already been reported, which was pretty substantial. And the work of a local reporter named Lavinia Mize. Lavinia Mize was the correspondent in White County. I knew her. I came to know her well. We really worked together very closely in the Chester case, and I give her a real tip of the hat. Lavinia wrote about the River Hills Project in 
White County, which was ill-fated. River Hills was a short-lived concept. Chester apparently created as a campsite for college kids, but was suspected to be a money-laundering front. But that's not what upset local folks. It's strange because apparently by the time the, the controversy arose, they actually already had opened River Hills for a season. I'm not sure how many weeks. And it had lost money. River Hills was intended to be a an outdoor recreational area for college students to come and drink and probably whatever else they wanted to do. And folks in White County aren't going to stand for that going on in their river. I mean, the people in North Georgia are kind of what you would expect, mostly salt of the earth, hardworking. One of the county commission members was very upset by a flyer that he had found for River Hills, and he brought it up in a county commission meeting. And it was come and drink and float down the river. And the county commissioner, he was just pretty upset. If River Hills didn't exactly sit well with the locals, it would prove very valuable to the federal investigators driving Operation Lone Star. You'll eventually hear more about Leslie Bickerton, the woman Chester brought in to oversee the River Hills project. She would become a very valuable and very controversial witness for both the prosecution and the defense. But we'll get into all of that a bit later. Back to C.B. Hackworth. Lavinia had been speaking to Chester for a year or more. I mean, she had been trying to tell us, trying to tell the world this was a really big story, and nobody was really paying attention to her because she was just, you know, the White County correspondent. But C.B. Hackworth says her journalistic instincts were on point. Here's Lavinia Mize-Hicks, in her own words, sharing her written thoughts on Lamar Chester. Personally, I do not know whether or not Chester was guilty of the charges in the 1983 alleged drug smuggling indictment. He claimed he was innocent and that he had been working for the government and the CIA. He told me that the CIA had been attempting to overthrow the government in the Bahamas. And it was such a huge story that it sounds fantastical at first blush. But I've got to tell you, she had kept clippings and she had dug up incorporation papers, and it was one of the best guides and briefings I've ever had. I referred to it throughout the next year and a half that I ended up covering the Chester case on a, a daily basis. Lavinia Mize provided CB's introduction to Lamar Chester. At that time, Lamar was under very strict orders not to talk to reporters, anyone connected to the media, anyone, period, outside of his family and his legal team. And he violated that as much as he could. I think it was as much to prove that the government couldn't make him be quiet as it was to disseminate information. I also believe he enjoyed the coverage and being a local celebrity. That was his ego. And Chester did not disappoint in person. The first time I met him, I drove up to White County and out to the dirt road where his farm was. And I use the word farm very 
liberally because it was a sprawling piece of property with a grass landing strip. It's the biggest house in White County, although not gaudy in any way. It was actually very tastefully done, but it was just so huge. The main room where I sat was enormous, and it was a combination of a huge living room and a huge dining area. And Lamar met me, shook my hand. He had a very warm, magnetic personality. I think he knew that and was able to use it to his advantage in many, many situations, including dealing with the media. He had compromised some people who had reported on him, and I knew that. Lamar was tall, he had a mustache, and he struck me as a man's man. Lavinia had described him in an article as a Marlboro man, really alpha male. Alpha male. I've met a few people like that. Sam Elliott is like that. You know, I'm in the presence of a real man. I remember Lamar smiling a lot, even though the circumstances you would think were kind of grim for him. I know there was a lien on the farm that had been placed by his lawyers. And of course, he was facing indictment. And CB knew the meeting was serving a purpose, at least on Chester's end. Lamar was very open to meeting with me, and he was very open when I met him. I never made any agreement, nor was I asked to, to protect him from himself, from the fact that he was violating a court order, and he had already been significantly warned because of a television report that Forrest Sawyer had done on WAGA-TV in Atlanta. Bill Stanford has already referenced that infamous interview, but I'll let CB remind you of what Chester claimed during it. Well, he boasted to Forrest Sawyer, and he said to me, separately. He said that he had flown a shipment of marijuana, a large shipment, directly over wherever Ronald Reagan, who was then president, was speaking at the time. I think it was Homestead Air Force Base. And that he could have shoved a bale out and dropped it at the president's feet if he wanted to. That's my recollection. He completely admitted to being one of the world's most prolific drug smugglers, that he had smuggled large shipments of marijuana from the Bahamas into the United States, Florida, but primarily Georgia. 200 shipments or more is what I think he said. And the reaction that statement received seemed to be the intention behind making it. Lamar was talking to a lot of reporters, and he wanted to stir this up. I wasn't oblivious to any of that stuff, even though I was young. But did you have any idea when you left his farm that day how intense and complicated your relationship with him would get? Well, you would think I would answer no, but I kind of did. The scope of what he had laid out was huge. Chester's interaction with Hackworth would intensify as the legal proceedings advanced. 
Lamar would call me often late at night and sometimes, if not usually, after he'd been drinking. Now, I'm not saying he was bad to drink. I don't know that to be a fact, but I do know that sometimes he drank at night and sometimes he called me. And these were not short little conversations. We would discuss what was going on with the case. He guided me toward things. I recorded all of my conversations with Lamar Chester. Georgia is a one-party consent state. You do not have to have permission from another person to record a conversation as long as you are a participant in that conversation. What you are listening to are the recordings of those actual conversations, which C.B. Hackworth is sharing for the first time. Washington was prepared to accept one plea to anything, anything, with a five-year cap, stand silent at sentencing so the judge could let me walk out, or sentence being no more than five years, which, you know, I'll do 24 months, but... Washington would take a plea to anything, tax evasion or anything, at this point. And bear in mind, this is June, is indicted in March. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they'd take anything. And if I give them Nigel Bow, I could walk clean with nothing. Now, they also made this offer, Gaffney and they had made this offer to Bogart just prior to them, but they wanted the Prime Minister also. Clean walk. Lamar Chester is claiming the prosecutors offered to drop charges against him if he turned on the Bahamian attorney, Nigel Bowe, and Prime Minister Pendling. But again, never once, despite everything he ever said to me, he never once did he say, hey, don't put this in the paper. Not once. When I wrote a five-part series on Lamar Chester, the heading on that rack card said, master criminal or secret agent. It was pretty dramatic. As would be the travel assignment Hackworth's paper greenlit as the young reporter continued to cover Chester. He told me he was going to testify before this royal commission. And he told me what he was going to say. And he told me F. Lee Bailey would be the attorney for the prime minister of the Bahamas. Then he would be doing the questioning. I played a very short, perhaps 60-second excerpt of that conversation with Lamar for the publisher of the newspaper. Through my relations with the government of the Bahamas and businessmen there and elsewhere, I have contacts all over the world, in particular Central and South America, Europe, and the Far East. And they supported my outrageous quest for this story. The publisher, he told me to go to the Bahamas when Lamar was there to testify. This was not a newspaper that routinely sent a reporter to the Bahamas. I stayed at the same resort hotel that Lamar stayed at. His lawyers did not know I was going to be there. They did not know the extent to which he was talking to me and likely others. His lawyers could not control him. CB also taped the proceedings, 
And he still has those recordings on microcassettes, which he shared with me when we met in person. He was being questioned by F. Lee Bailey, who, not by accident, was one of the most famous lawyers in America. An extremely talented, brilliant man. When you met Mr. Morgan Cherry, Here, attorney F. Lee Bailey questions Chester about his interaction with a man named Morgan Cherry. What specifically did he want you to do? He really didn't want me to come by, but if I did come by, to not reveal his identity. I believe you not reveal Morgan Cherry's identity. Morgan Cherry's identity. But his request was that you go back on your promise to the commission and not return. That's correct. I believe you used the word just keep your mouth shut. That's correct. Did he indicate why his employers, the uh, uh, had an interest in silencing you, Mr. Chester? Uh, they just didn't want it known that they were engaged or that they had been uh, instrumental in the Brian Ross report. The Brian Ross report? That was the 1983 NBC investigative piece titled The Bahamas, A Nation for Sale. And the man named Morgan Cherry Chester's referring to is his allegedly CIA-connected link to the assignments he claims to have conducted on behalf of the U.S. government. F. Lee Bailey. He was very good that day. He was representing the Prime Minister of the Bahamas. As I understand it, Morgan Cherry claimed to be a person who had helped trigger the NBC broadcast to begin with, and whose clients would profit by an investigation sure to follow such a broadcast to the point where he could promise you Bahamian citizenship. Was that his representation? That pretty much sums it up. The same day that was taped, CB recalls a very interesting interaction which led to an after-court meeting at the hotel casino with Chester and two young women. Lamar went to get a drink of water, and he said, if you have any questions, I'll be in the casino tonight at 1030 in the hotel where we were staying. So did you go down uh, to the casino at 1030 that night? Yeah, I went down to the casino. I think I had $64 that I was going to gamble with. I'm 25 years old, working for a small daily newspaper, paying child support. So all I had on my first trip ever anywhere out of the country, $64 to gamble with. I got there early, and my $64 did not last long. I blew that money at the um, roulette wheel very quickly. So I did find Lamar standing at a slot machine, one that you fed dollar tokens in three at a time. I had played the slots earlier with quarters, and um, to me, this was like bordering on real money. And not only was he doing that, he was winning. You know, he put three things in, and we were beginning to talk, and he'd pull the lever and be about to answer a question, and tokens would pour out. He didn't care about the money that he was winning. He didn't care about the money he was putting into the slot machine. He just radiated wealth, and that's part of what I think made him attractive to a lot of people, men as well as women. I don't mean sexually, but I mean wanting to be in his inner circle. And we weren't standing there very long before a young lady 
walked up and just started hanging around him. <laughs> At first, I thought it might be someone he knew or a legal assistant or something, but it wasn't. She was a, a stranger. I guess it was, you know, people have <laughs> described him as good looks or magnetic personality, whatever. And in addition, the fact that money kept pouring out of this slot machine. I think the sound was some sort of um, mating call. <laughs> but uh, since I was standing there, I guess, the young lady said, well, I'll be right back. And she came back with her friend. They were both pretty. They were both young, just having a good time on vacation in the Bahamas. There was a bar overlooking the casino. Next thing I know, the drink I was supposed to have with Lamar, as we'd already said, we're gonna go upstairs and have a drink, ends up being these two young ladies following us up there. So it's starting to feel like a double date. Yeah, and that bothered me because, you know, on the one hand, I was a 25-year-old, fairly recently divorced young man and, you know, beautiful young woman sitting next to me. I remember what I was thinking was, you know, they didn't really cover this specific thing in journalism school in any of the classes I took. But I am fairly sure you're not allowed to pick up girls with the drug smuggler that you're covering. And at the same time, it's very socially awkward because it was superficially a very nice, happy little group. But fortunately for me, as I'm sitting there trying to think, how am I gonna get out of this gracefully? Lamar actually provided me with the inspiration, not intentionally. And apparently did so with his signature style. When the conversation fairly quickly led to, you know, who are you and what do you do after they have talked about being a nurse and et cetera, well, who are you? And Lamar said something pretty instantly about, well, I'm one of the biggest drug smugglers in the world, and this guy's a reporter that has been following me, and you know he writes about a lot of the things that I do. <laughs> and um, I don't think that they believed him. Did they just kind of laugh it off? I think they kind of laughed it off. Like, oh, sure. I was like, well, damn. <laughs> yeah, that didn't scare him off. And some people who I've told this story to have said that may have made somebody more attracted. Well, it didn't really. It was that they didn't believe it, I don't think, the way that he said it. <laughs> and again, it's consistent with what he always said. He never shied away from it. You just can't believe that anybody was this upfront. But I guess that was his strategy. If you know you're going to be accused of smuggling massive amounts of marijuana, get in front of it. I think that was what he tried to do always. And it's not but as was, if these ladies had like cell phones in their hands where they could Google it quickly. Couldn't Google it. That's when CB realized he could actually prove Chester's claim to their doting wannabe dates. My secret weapon, I suddenly realized, is like a light bulb going off over my head. I had a major series about Lamar Chester five-part series called Citizen Chester was running in my newspaper. 
I ran up to the room and got the card that is inserted into a newspaper rack that you put money in and pull down the front of and get a paper out of. And this one had a photograph of Lamar Chester that I had taken on that first visit to the house with a banner headline, Master Criminal or Secret Agent. And I took it out, went back downstairs, went right up to that table and unrolled it. I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that the color drained from their faces. There may have been women who would have been attracted by that, but these two were not. They soon made excuses to leave. Call it a night. And you know what? I don't think that bothered Lamar Chester at all. I think he was very happy that they knew who he was. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. 
Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So at the time that the inquiry was happening in the Bahamas, were you even aware that it was going on? No, I, I wasn't following it. I was back in D.C. for a few months and my mind was elsewhere. When it was happening, and I wasn't even aware of it later when I came back and Bob Adams came up to me and said, do you know who Morgan Cherry is? Well, it was shortly after this that the mysterious Morgan Cherry mentioned it. I got a call from Bob who said that Lamar wanted to hire me as, as a consultant. There was going to be a pretrial hearing in Atlanta and he wanted me to be there as a consultant. I said, what? He said, you know, look over transcripts, catch inconsistencies, that sort of thing. He said he'd pay me a couple hundred dollars a day plus travel. I decided, I, I, I guess I could be a consultant after all. Consultant for what? Using your expertise as a journalist? Because it almost <laughs> seems as if it would be more a, a legal standpoint. Well, I, I was used to looking over government documents and finding discrepancies and that sort of thing. Believe it or not, at this point, it still didn't seem real to me that they thought I was with the CIA. So it was just an extension of, of the craziness that had begun when I started working for Intercept and started getting paid for blowing assignments. And if they wanted to pay me, I figured, why not? Of course, I shouldn't have done it. I knew it had something to do with their belief that I was with the CIA. Yeah, you know, a couple hundred dollars a day plus travel doesn't sound that bad and probably seemed like much more in the early 80s. It was certainly enough for me, that's for sure. And if they did believe you were with the CIA, they might have thought they were compromising you at the same time. <laughs> they did compromise me, but I wasn't with the CIA. I mean, I was digging myself in pretty deep with people who I really didn't want to offend. Yeah, that's the other thing I would point out. You didn't worry that you were getting into something that you might not escape from? I just sort of walked right into it. And that seems to have been the plan. Here's Chester talking to CB about Phil Stanford. I have a guy that I'm paying to gather the facts. Phil Stanford. But our agreement was Phil's mine. He would cooperate with me. The guy is good. He's a good investigative reporter. I am not by any means convinced that he's not currently in the active employee of the CIA. One of the guys that works with the CIA, he called me. He says, listen, that guy's with the, with the company. You heard that right. Lamar Chester claims someone working with the CIA confirmed Phil Stanford was also in the agency's employ. On the next Murder Miami, Bill Stanford leaves the Amsterdam Palace for a farm in Georgia. It was kind of strange. First thing, they put Bob up in the guest house, and I'm staying at the main house with Lamar and Artis, who I can tell right off really doesn't want me there at all. As the scope of Operation Lone Star tightens around Lamar Chester. Frankly, with what the government stating witnesses fed to alligators, I could not understand how someone who had just made a deal to testify against him would be anywhere near him. But I was going to find out. 
and reignites a cold case mystery from Miami. And this was right out of the blue because we'd never spoken about Clay Williams, the intercept detective, who was found dead in the Everglades. Wait, wait, wait! I'm sorry, he brought up Clay Williams? Leading to a possible break in the Clay Williams murder that leads back to Intercept. Murder Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Executive producers are Lauren Bright Pacheco, Taylor Shacoin, and Phil Stanford. Written by Phil Stanford and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Audio editing and sound design by Nicholas Harder, Evan Tyre, and Taylor Shacoin. Featuring music by Evan Tyre, Phil Mayer, John Murchison, and Taylor Shacoin. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the stories that matter to you. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.